Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? (laughs) And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the first year in five years that on the day of Pentecost, I am not going to preach from Acts 2. <laughs> and we'll get there. But our, but our passage today was chosen because of the schedule of readings which we follow. And what I think the Lord desires to speak through this passage as he as I mentioned in my prayer, as he inspired Ezekiel to see this vision and as he moved upon Ezekiel to record that vision for us. The reason why Ezekiel has this vision is to communicate something to God's people about the, the purpose for which God redeems his people. Why does God have compassion on any at all? I want to look at this this passage today in, in uh, four points. First, the commissioning of Ezekiel and how it takes place and what it says. There are some details here in this chapter, what it says about the nature of God's activity as he calls Ezekiel to preach to God's people. I want to look then at the nature of prophesying to bones. Uh, for those of you who've heard this passage, it's one of the more common passages to quote from, from the Old Testament scriptures. And so even our familiarity of this text precludes us, it, it hinders us sometimes from seeing what the Lord would say because we don't tease out everything that the passage presents to us. But what Ezekiel does in prophesying to these bones 
describes the work of the Holy Spirit in preaching. And then finally, the Spirit's interpretation himself as he has shown Ezekiel what there he is to do, and then he explains to Ezekiel the interpretation. And then finally, where was Ezekiel's vision fulfilled? And, and we'll see this through what we uh, celebrate here on, on Pentecost Sunday in the giving of the Spirit as God renews his distributed and dispersed people. First, Ezekiel's vision prophesies or it tells the purpose of God in the gospel. Ezekiel's vision is given to Ezekiel and to us, therefore, through the writing of the scripture to highlight and to illumine what God is doing in the purpose of regeneration, in the purpose of preaching. Ezekiel is not a prophet in these passages who has kind of wandered off into the wilderness and found God for himself. There are many visions of spirituality. One of the most dangerous is this kind of self-directed spiritual journey that people take. This is very common in our world today. You see it in the New Age phenomenon, as I've called the Oprah phenomenon. You, you have self-directed spiritual endeavors of people trying to find truth on their own. And yet, as Andy alluded to during the Sunday school hour, and as I believe this passage highlights clearly, people do not find God. Rather, God takes hold of people and causes them to come to him through his promises and through his, through his word. And the reason it's so important to understand that is because it colors everything about the nature of salvation and the nature of preaching and how we walk as Christians. So this, this topic of what we're going to see here in the next few minutes does not just apply to preachers. It does not just apply to evangelists. It applies to all those who are disciples of Christ because it is by the word of God, illumined only by the spirit of God, that we progress in believing and receiving the promises of God, which is the means of our sanctification. Our sanctification does not come about, although it is gradual, although it is lifelong, it does not come about in an abstract sense. It comes about in a concrete way. God uses his means of grace to apply his will to our lives. We do not just mystically become more set apart to the Lord. It comes through his word, his spirit, and his people. So Ezekiel is not this prophet who's gone off into the wilderness, discovered God on his own, and is now returning to Israel and commending them to go after Yahweh instead of the other gods that they've followed, as we're going to see here in just a minute. Verse 1, it says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. Again, hearkening back to Andy's message just a few minutes ago during the Sunday school hour, he emphasized, I thought this was so wonderful, he emphasized for a good number of minutes the beauty and the power of the human hand. Notice what, what Ezekiel is recording. He says, the hand of the Lord is upon me. The, my, uh, my daughter, as she is learning to love to spend time with dad, me, uh, she has taken up a great love for watching videos on YouTube. And one of the things that we constantly are doing is we're going to violin, violin concertos and we're watching this classical music and I try to help her imitate the people who are playing the violins. And some of these videos that are well produced show the masterful use of the human hand as it is doing vibrato and, and sliding between the strings and moving the bow between the strings in such a way as to play multiple strings at once. These are all things that require great precision, great skill, and are the expression of artistry. There's a purpose in the violin concerto. There's a purpose in the conductor and the performer to express beauty through their hands. And this is what God is doing to Ezekiel. He has put his hand upon Ezekiel and is taking Ezekiel somewhere because God's purpose in prophecy, God's purpose in preaching is to glorify himself. As we're going to see at the end of this passage very clearly, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley and it was full of, full of bones. 
This word for valley also is the same word that can be translated as plain. There's a great battle scene that has taken place, and these are the dead slain warriors who have now decayed and are, are, are fully dead. They, the flesh has gone, and there are only bones left. Verse 2, he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. The point is that God communicates to Ezekiel this vision by the Spirit of the Lord. Ezekiel does not have spiritual power by which he can perceive into the things of God. Rather, God himself communicates by the Spirit to Ezekiel. That is not a two-way street here. We can pray to God, certainly, but we cannot take revelation of who God is and what God wants to do by our own power. It is a gift of the Spirit of God. Laying hold of Ezekiel, God commissions Ezekiel to address God's concern. It is not Ezekiel's burden for the valley. He does not even see the bones until God opens his eyes. But then notice what he does. To do this, God reveals to Ezekiel both the number of the bones and the severity of the bones. There were a great many of the bones. And behold, they were very dry. You see, when you have a dead body or a body that's just started to die, there are sometimes certain things you can do in resuscitation, whether it's shocking a heart or doing CPR, which is the physical uh, movement of the heart to try and reclaim the momentum that the heart needs to continue. But these bones, there's no flesh, and the bones are very, very dry. There, it is the Lord's desire to prove to Ezekiel the state of these bones is beyond any sort of hope. There is no resuscitation of these bones without miraculous power. Finally, he then asks Ezekiel what can be done about this. Verse 3, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. That always is the correct answer whenever the Lord asks you an impossible <laughs> question just for the record. But Ezekiel does this, he reveals his humility. He reveals his humility, not presupposing to assert that it is impossible for these bones to live. And the, the application of this in our lives is so important because not only around us, but even within us, we often find valleys of dead bones where there's nothing commendable about our character or the way we have carried our heart in, in that circumstance or in that season or in that section of our hearts and our lives. And yet, Ezekiel is quick to refer the promise back to God. He refers this question back to the omniscient one. I thought it was wonderful, again, in the Sunday school hour, the providence of God, the one who sees beforehand. The scriptures describe the Almighty as the one who declares the end from the beginning. And so he sees what will take place and therefore causes it to come to being. The Lord is moving history as we have seen last week in the ascension. Christ reigns upon the throne and he is moving the world towards his intended purpose, which is not simply the salvation of sinners, but the glorification of his name in the eyes of those people, that his mercy would be seen. Ezekiel here knows that these bones cannot live unless God does something absolutely powerful. Verse 4, he then said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I want you to notice very closely here in verse 4, God does not send Ezekiel to begin the preaching of the promise as the announcement of what God will do. But rather, the first words out of Ezekiel's mouth are a command to listen. That's very important to understand. He does not simply begin to proclaim the promises of God. He calls his hearers to hear it's almost the postmodern's literary theory. It's self-referential. He's, he's commanding his hearers to hear. He's describing the sort of speech that he will give. He says, this is the word of the Lord. God's answer, therefore, to the state of the bones is not to cause Ezekiel to go learn how to make flesh. 
but rather to speak, to speak the very promises of God. This seemingly absurd imagery should not go unnoticed. Bones do not have ears. It's very often when we read familiar passages, we just move through them so quickly. Oh, I've read this before, the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful prophecy. And yet we skip over the most important detail of this account. God is telling Ezekiel to speak to those who have no capacity to hear. Again, this, this, is, this is so important to what we understand the gospel to be because it is not, Ezekiel is not a self-directed prophet off on a search for the triune God or off on a search for the real Yahweh. He is not going out on his own. The hand of the Lord was upon him and he took him out in the spirit. Likewise, for those who hear the promises of God, they do not hear of their own accord. They do not have the capacity to hear the word of the Lord. And therefore, that's the first words out of Ezekiel's mouth. Ezekiel's given a command, and that first command is to tell them to listen. Isn't that interesting that the first words are words that say, listen. And if you do not listen to the first command, you can't obey it. Isn't that an interesting dilemma here? These bones have no capacity to hear. And what the Lord is saying in this vision is, it is he alone who causes life to come. They cannot even hear unless he gives them grace. It's very similar in the New Testament when Jesus commands Lazarus to come forth. He speaks and says, Lazarus, come forth. By the way, if you don't understand, Lazarus had been dead for three days, and you do not hear things when you are dead. So what happened? God caused Lazarus to come to life. He heard and obeyed. It's a, it's a metaphor for the gospel. It's the point of preaching is that God is glorified. This is the reason why salvation is not a self-directed self-directed project. It's not the act of a person. John in his first chapter says that these children were not born of the will of man, not born of the will of man, but of the will of God. The point is this, that the point of salvation is to glorify God, and sinners dead in their sins do not wish to glorify God. Therefore, they cannot come to the Lord to worship him as God, to honor him as God, as Romans 1 tells us, because they don't want to glorify God. The point of salvation, the reason that you were saved, is that you would exist to the praise of the glory of his grace. And we see that in Ezekiel's vision, especially here at the end. Verse 5, thus says the Lord of God, Ezekiel continues to speak to these bones, and he says to the bones, these are not my words, these are God's words. Thus says the Lord of God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Again, bones do not have lungs. And yet the Lord is speaking to these bones in, the, in a promise, a promise that in the imagery of the passage seems impossible. Verse 6, I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. This vision already here, these last few phrases are, are tipping the hand. It's anticipating what will come about when the Spirit interprets his own vision to Ezekiel about the purpose for why these bones are coming back to life, that they would know that Yahweh is the Lord and not the other gods of the peoples. Ezekiel's task is to announce, to God's, uh, announce the promise of God's deliverance from the state of death and the restoration from decay to these bones which cannot of their own accord come back to life. Just as God formed and breathed into Adam, he will reform and restore these dead sons of Adam. The imagery is impossible to miss. In Genesis, when God took hold of the earth, he formed the man and then he breathed into him the breath of life. Those who come forth from Adam, however, are dead because in Adam all sinned and all died. And therefore, these 
bones in this valley, they're not just wayward Israel, as we'll see at the end of the passage. They are all of God's people who have gone astray, who've gone away from Yahweh. Hearing the command of Yahweh, Ezekiel then prophesies according to faith. In 2 Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church, and he says, we believed and therefore we spoke. And he's quoting from Psalm 116, this notion of belief in the promises of God causes the preacher or the, pro- the one who is prophesying to speak those promises to others. Ezekiel obeys here in faith. He obeys knowing that Yahweh wants to do something about this valley of bones. And so then he begins to prophesy to the bones and obey the Lord. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Isn't that wonderful that he highlights there was a sound. I think that's a very interesting thing, and and we see on the day of Pentecost what happens when the sending of the Spirit is given. There's a great sound from heaven as the Lord begins to descend upon His people in His Spirit. Here, Ezekiel prophesies, and notice quite clearly, as I prophesied, there was a sound. I take this to mean that the Holy Spirit is acting within Ezekiel's action that God himself desires to restore these dead bones and make them into his great army, that they would know that he is the Lord, and he desires to do this through the giving of a promise by Ezekiel through preaching of the promise to these bones, which again have no capacity to hear of their own accord unless God grants them life. I will cause flesh to come upon you. And so, verse 8, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. It's very interesting what happens. Ezekiel is very careful to record what's taking place in this vision. He prophesies a promise. This promise then causes, in effect, God works in Ezekiel's working, and yet there's no breath within them. Ezekiel's speech, because it was according to God's speech, is like God's speech. God is the God who spoke. He said, let there be light, and behold, there was light. God has the power to speak and to cause to come into being from nothing, and this is what he does by his word. His word always has his intended effect. That wonderful promise of Isaiah as the rains fall from heaven and as the snow falls from heaven, so it shall be. The word that I speak will not return to me void without having accomplished the purpose for which I have sent it. God's speech always produces the desire of God's heart. It does not return void. It has an effect. And so Ezekiel begins to utter the promise, hear the word of the Lord, bones, he will cause life to come back to you. And as he speaks, as he prophesied, it came to be. His words were used of God in this vision to be a catalyst for God's restoring of the bones, but the task is not over. As we saw, it was the hand of the Lord which came upon Ezekiel. And that hand drove Ezekiel into this valley by the Spirit. And he took Ezekiel around the valley that Ezekiel might notice. I believe this is God communicating his desire to Ezekiel that that Ezekiel would be a prophet, that he would be an intercessor, that he would stand in the place of these bones, noticing their deadness, and therefore he would have compassion and obedience according to the faith of the promise of God. And so therefore he prophesies, and as he prophesies, God's desire to restore the bones is accomplished. It is not Ezekiel's mission, it is God's mission. Though these bones are now bodies, as James says in James chapter 2, paraphrasing paraphrasing him, a body without the spirit is still dead. He says, as a body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works, or faith that never produces anything. And so these 
These bodies are now there. They have been restored. Sinews have come back. Flesh has come back. They look like men, but they are not breathing at all. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Throughout the scriptures, the number four is always very important. It talks about two or three things in the scriptures. First of all, the corners of the altar are always numbered four. Likewise, the cross itself, it is no mistake, it is numbered four. And yet, what we have in the New Testament, the most significant number four in the Bible is the four Gospels. Later in the book of Revelation, we see this same theme picked up by the Revelator as he says there were angels and they were given an eternal gospel to spread throughout the world. This is what the Lord is doing by his word. He's causing life to come into his people by the giving of the Spirit through the preaching of his word. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What a wonderful vision that the Lord has given Ezekiel as they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Though the men lying were restored in part, unless the breath comes into them, they will return to bones. Again, it's helpful to tease out and to press out this imagery. The Lord had restored these bones back into bodies, but they were not yet men again. They were simply still dead. If you do not know this, we usually bury before this happens, but if you leave a body, the flesh will fall off. It will decay. Unless that body comes back to life, it is the life in you which preserves you from decaying. It is your body continuing its God-given processes of waste management and taking in energy and, and respiration, breathing in and out, that cause you to continue to live and not be destroyed. And yet, if the vision stopped here, we would know the end of the story. These bodies will turn back into bones. And so the Lord is very careful to say to Ezekiel, it is by the Spirit of God that those who are bones become men again. As God desires to commission Ezekiel, using him to preach to Israel, so here he interprets this vision. This is not just some spiritual vision without concrete application. And this is important for us as we come to God's word. God's word always has an application. Although we might not understand what that application is, although we might not even be able to perceive, even with some great difficulty, what the application is, God's word is never purposeless. There is always a point to every word of God. Sometimes the genealogies are there simply to just tell you and to remind you God sees and he knows. And although you may feel like an obscure part of history God knows your name. That's what the genealogies do. And so often we're, we're so aloof from what we're doing when we're reading the passage, we don't even stop to think, what might the Lord be saying? It is God's desire that Ezekiel understands what he says to him. And the reason he gives it in a vision is so that Ezekiel would meditate upon it. The very nature of God's word requires meditation upon it because it's not immediately clear what the Lord is saying. From time to time, there are very obscure passages of Scripture, and those are always, in my experience, the more rewarding ones. And so God then helps Ezekiel to understand. He wants Ezekiel to go prophesy to the nation of Israel as they are in captivity, and therefore he opens up the prophecy to Ezekiel. At this time in history, Ezekiel, excuse me, Israel had become spiritually dead. At this time in the writing of Ezekiel, the nation of Israel had gone after other gods and had experienced a, an expulsion from the land in exile into the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. And they were carried off as prisoners of war. They were carried off as those who were conquered and defeated. The city of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities in Judea had all been sieged and were being destroyed and were leveled, essentially. 
exiled from the land and captive to the Babylonian army, the Babylonian military, these armies of God were destroyed completely. If you remember covenant history, what God was doing with Israel was that he had given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promises that he would make their people great. And they went down into Egypt and multiplied, and God shamed the gods of Egypt and exalted his name that he would gain glory over Pharaoh. He brought Israel then into the land, and the purpose of bringing them into the land was twofold, to give them great gifts that they would thank God in the land, and the other was to clean house, that the nations which inhabited the land, which we now call Palestine, which then was called Canaan, had multiplied fake gods and were sacrificing to these gods in despicable, horrible ways. And God used Israel as an army to come into the land and to wipe out the nations which were hating God through their corporate evil. The evil of Molech, for example, was the offering up of children to get better crops that year. This is a horrific thing, and so God has taken hold of Israel to come and wipe out those who were against his ways and his will. Though God had removed sin and judged sin in a sense at the time of Noah, now he was doing the same thing again through Israel. And yet, at this time, Israel goes astray. They do not fulfill the purpose of God for their generation. Verse 11, he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. You see, the spiritual state of the people of Israel was deadness and dryness. Their bones were dried up. Their sinews were cut. They were cut off from God through their manifold sins. Israel at this time in her history was well aware of what they had done and why they were in exile. They knew the reason for their discipline. Though they were rescued from Egypt by Yahweh, they had desired, they had longed for other gods, and indeed to other gods they did go. God actually prophesies this through the song of Moses in Deuteronomy. He says that you're going to go off. He knows the hearts of his people. They're wayward. They're idolatrous in heart. And they go off and they serve the gods of the people. Remember, they were supposed to come into the land of Canaan and destroy the worship of these false gods. And they do not do that. Over and over, when you read the book of Joshua, Joshua records a number of things. This nation was left. This nation was left. This nation was left. And then sometimes there will be a comment, and they became a thorn, or they became a frustration. We see this again in the kings. King David does a a pretty good job of establishing the kingdom, and yet the very next generation, Solomon, he begins to trade and make treaties and take concubines to himself. And as these concubines come into his home, they bring their gods with them. And because of Solomon's folly in loving these women and, and multiplying his harem, he then begins to tolerate false worship. And the reason he does so is because he is enticed by the pleasures of life, and he is an idolater in heart and then becomes an idolater in deed. And so this is the state of Israel at this time. God knows, and even Israel through her captivity, they know that they have sinned against Yahweh by going after other gods. If you read through the Old Testament, you will find horrific accounts of the sort of false worship that was taking place. At one time, Ezekiel sees in the temple and he sees by the Spirit of the Lord, he sees them worshiping the Son in the very temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And he goes into another room and he sees the walls and they've painted pictures of beasts and they were bowing down before them. This is the sort of evil that Israel engaged in before the exile. And so Israel knows the reason for her chastisement and they are cut off from hope. It says in the prior verse, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. What do they mean by cut off? Being cut off from God's people was a judgment for idolatry. And they understood that as a nation, they had sinned against Yahweh and therefore were cut off from the promises. 
However, God was extremely rich in mercy, and he desired to make known his heart for mercy for the people. His name is going to be made great among the nations, and therefore at this time in history, when there is nothing commendable about Israel, God has compassion upon Israel. Why? Not so that Israel would be restored only, but also that his name would be made great. Remember why God judged Israel, uh, Egypt? He judged them so that his name would be made great and that all the nations would know that he is Yahweh. And that's exactly what takes place in this vision. The reason God has compassion upon Israel is to make them know that he is God alone. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Again, press out this imagery. People who are in graves cannot get out of their graves. I will bring you into the land of Israel. What was the, what was the downfall? They had been in the land, but they had not obeyed according to faith in the land. And therefore, they were exiled from that land that they might understand their rebellion. And so God graciously promises, not only will you come back to life, but I will put you back in the place, the, the sanctuary, the land that I've made for you to have as a gift, I will restore that which you squandered away. Verse 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up out of your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Notice three times in this passage something that said, through the miracle of granting new spiritual life in Israel, Israel would come to know that Yahweh is God alone, that none of the other gods after which they had run, none of those other gods are gods at all, but Yahweh is the Lord alone. Three times in this passage, God says that after the restoration of new life to the nation of Israel, they will know. He says, you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the point for the restoration of Israel. See, salvation, the gospel, is not a project just to deliver wretched sinners from the penalty of eternal damnation. That is not the end goal of the gospel. That is an effect of the gospel. The point of the gospel is to make much of God, to glorify God, that he would be seen as the gracious, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternally merciful God, and that through his restoration and saving of some, his grace and his glory would be expressed in clarity, in beauty. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's not just restoration of individuals, but it's done so that they would then see God as God and that they would glorify him. You see, that is the difference between man's gospel and God's gospel. Throughout the scriptures, the point of his working in time, in taking hold of rebellious people, in, in rescuing wretched sinners, the point, as we see in the Bible, is the exaltation of his mercy and his grace so that people would know who God is. That's the point of this vision. God does not just grant new life, but causes his people to marvel and wonder at his mercy and power. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says that when Jesus returns, he will be marveled at by all those who believe. That's the point of the gospel, is to glorify Jesus Christ, to demonstrate his great love and his mercy. Why is it marvelous? It's because it's unthinkable from the natural, natural mind. I, I sometimes love the purpose of fiction. The purpose of fiction is to give us analogies for the things of God, in a sense. that Everything in God's world is for God. It's to glorify him. And so when you think of this, this whole group of comics, it's called Marvel. I've been doing some thinking about why is there such a resurgence of love of superhero stories. It's because as people, we are becoming increasingly detached from the real superhero, the real superman. 
It is the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he lovingly, willingly lays down his life for the sake of his people, not just for their salvation alone, but for through obedience to his Father that the grace and mercy of God might be able to be extended to those who deserve death. That is why the cross happened. It's so that God would be seen as who he is, as merciful and as gracious. Though Ezekiel did prophesy to this generation, though he did from time to time receive some fruit from this vision as he began to prophesy to Israel, we know from the rest of covenant history in the scriptures that most did not return from the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. God had promised, I will restore you to the land, and at the time of the closing of Ezekiel's ministry, that promise was not fully fulfilled, and yet in the New Testament, we see that promise quite clearly. At the sending of Christ, Israel was again drifting, just as they did during Ezekiel's day. Though Ezekiel was prophesying to a people outside of the land, in the Babylonian captivity, Jesus comes and begins to preach, along with John the Baptist and the other apostles, he begins to preach to God's people who are in another form of captivity. Though they are in the land, they are captive to the political power of Rome and the spiritual corruption that attended that, and they were captive to the teachings of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the the, the scribes who were twisting the word of God and were causing some form of religion without any sort of substance of repentance and mercy. And so Israel is very much in the same place in the day of Christ as they were in the day of Ezekiel. They are spiritually captive. So they are a people who dwell in deep darkness and are in need of consolation. This is the point of both in Matthew and Luke 2. In Luke 2, it says Simon was going and he was preaching to those who were looking for the consolation of Israel. Also, Anna was doing this Same thing, both of them were speaking in the temple for those who were looking for the consolation of Israel. Why? Because at the time, Israel greatly needed consoled. She was in a greatly, deeply depressing state. Matthew records that the light of Christ in the coming of the incarnation, he says, he's quoting Isaiah, he says that a great light has shone upon the people who dwell in darkness. This is the nation of Israel at the time of the Lord Jesus. As we see in every gospel, just like Ezekiel does in this vision, Jesus walks around the places of Israel and takes note of their condition. He says at one point that he was grieved in his heart because the people were like sheep without shepherds. That's quoting from Isaiah and Ezekiel. There was a great controversy at that time. That phrase emerges in the Bible in Ezekiel and Isaiah, when the Lord sees the spiritual leadership of Israel at that time, and they see that they're oppressing the sheep, and they're abusing the sheep. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, and his heart is moved with compassion, because his sheep do not have any shepherds. Being greater than Ezekiel, Jesus prophesies that at the sound of his voice, the dead would live. In John 5, 25, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Do you see how this surpasses the vision that Ezekiel had? Ezekiel received a vision from the Lord himself by the Holy Spirit, and he said, there will be a time when you will be restored. And Jesus then says, I tell you the truth, the hour is coming and is now that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What this means is that the voice of the Son of God, Jesus' speech, is God's speech. His word is God's word. As Jesus was about to depart, he then instructs his disciples that they're going to, they're about to receive the spirit promised by the Father to help them and to guide them. We see this in John 14, 26. He says that there is going to be a promise, the the spirit of promise, the one whom my Father will send to you. That is why in Acts 1, then Jesus, when he says, you will receive the promise of the Father not many days from now, he is explicitly referring to the sending of the Spirit. Therefore, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, his disciples do indeed receive the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is what we are commemorating today. 
this great fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. It's interesting that in Ezekiel 36, 26, that very prophecy is given, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the promise of the gospel, that God would cause new life to come about and that he would take out a dead spirit and put in a new spirit within us. At the sending of the Spirit, we then see quite literally the fulfillment of what Ezekiel saw just in seed or kernel form. At the sending of the Spirit, a great multitude of people were already gathered in Israel for the celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost now is the commemoration of the sending of the Spirit so that we can do the work of God and the will of God by completing the law of God by the Spirit. But until the sending of the Spirit, the day of Pentecost was the commemoration and the celebration of the giving of the law. And so now the Spirit has come upon the disciples, and in that coming, in Acts 2, we see a great number of nations. And these nations are the places to which the dispersed people who were left in Babylon had gone. We see a great multitude of nations who are already gathered so that at the sending of the Spirit, God would begin to do what he had promised to Ezekiel, that I will gather you from where you were dispersed and where you were scattered, and I will install you back into the land. Peter then addresses them after the sending of the Spirit and the, the speaking in tongues by, on the part of the, those in the upper room. He addresses the people, those who were dispersed and had now been gathered, telling them of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Messiah. He then tells them to dead bones, just as Ezekiel, he then prophesies to them the exact same way, by announcing a promise after telling them of the history of God. <clears throat> Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You notice the, the promise here? A command, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the promise, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What a wonderful promise is given in the new covenant that the promise of God is not simply for us, but also for our children. And we do not presume, but rather understand that that promise is only granted by the Spirit of God. In that very day, the day of Pentecost, a great army was restored to God's new people, the church, as he was gathering not just Israel, but now also beginning to gather the Gentile nations. He begins to fold together and make one new man in Jesus Christ as these, these, had, who, these Hellenistic Jews who had come from all around the Mediterranean, who had come to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem that day. He begins to cause a great army to come forth. But this army is not going to stay in the land of Israel. And this army does not use swords, <clears throat> except for the sword of the word of God. And then they are sent not into the promised land. They are sent into all the world. Because the new covenant has expanded the boundaries of the covenant promises to include the whole earth. Everywhere that God sends his people. Therefore, throughout time, God has continued to reach dry bones through the preaching of the gospel. This is why I'm so deeply encouraged, just speaking about our history as a people and where we are as a people, I am so deeply encouraged by the response of our church at the attempt to create a larger place for more people to come and hear God's word. It is because we have partnered together so many of you have given so wonderfully. You, you are partnering together for the sake of exalting the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ and that announcement in godly preaching. That is what I am hoping will be our legacy as GCF as we continue to move forward. It is that God is continuing to reach dry bones today through preaching 
and through the ministry of his Holy Spirit as he works his word in dead bones. In fact, Paul uses this very imagery in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And these who were dead have been granted new life in the gospel. He says, he raised you up together with Christ. And now not only are you in new life, he has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. The reason we are seated in the heavenly places is that through the church, the mystery, the manifold wisdom of God would be proclaimed in the heavenlies. That we have a, a testifying of what we are doing as we live together as a church. We are, we are testifying of the excellency of his mercy and of his grace. Therefore, today, let us honor the Spirit who is the Lord, receiving him into every aspect of our life. You see, the celebration of Pentecost is not just the remembering of that day where we got the gift of tongues, but rather it is the exaltation, it is the adoring of the Spirit, it is the honoring of the Spirit, the, the renewing of our commitment not to grieve the Spirit nor to quench the Spirit, but to receive the Holy Spirit and every aspect of his work. Not just signs, wonders, although those are necessary for the building up of the people, but also his work of justification, regeneration, and sanctification. That the Holy Spirit is causing his word to gain ground among dead and dry bones. That is what remembering and commemorating Pentecost is really all about. So, as we celebrate Pentecost, let's thank God for the Spirit who works new life in us and give ourselves to receiving his word that we might glorify him rightly. The whole point of doing the work of preaching and the work of participating in the life of the church as you are today, the whole point is that you would give yourself to the entry of his word into your heart and mind for the purpose of causing you to be able to glorify him. The reason preaching exists is to glorify God. And therefore, as we hear and as we preach, our task is not simply to become relevant to people in the world or even to aim at the conversion alone, but rather that we would exalt Jesus Christ in everything that we do. That is the point of preaching. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for Ezekiel, his vision, his recording. Lord, what a precious gift you have given us in this scriptures that we have. Lord, we do not rightly know, we do not rightly understand the worth of what we have day to day. We pray, Lord, that not only in preaching, but also as we live as a people daily, we would allow your word to gain entry. Lord, we know that we ourselves are very much like these bones in some ways. Although you've given us new life, there is often somewhat deadness within us. And therefore, your word says that we're to put to death what is earthly in us. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from any apathy concerning your word and that we would see that it is your promises, the uttering of your word alone, that causes new life to come. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and that you would open our hearts to receive this word and that you would seal it and that it, you would cause it to bear fruit within us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.